everyone, and thank you for coming back and joining me tonight on Next on the T. I'm your host, Chris Mascaro, and tonight I get to share two of my all-time favorite guests with you. First up, I'm going to be joined by World Golf Foundation CEO Steve Mona. As CEO of the World Golf Foundation, Steve is responsible for things like the World Golf Hall of Fame, the First Tee, Golf 2020, and so much more. And I'm going to get an update from Steve. The first thing I always like to ask him is is talking about how the PGA Tour and the charitable donations they raise every year, how that's doing. How did that do for 2017? I hear it was a record year. And and, and I always think it's important to remind our listeners about that and that golf raises more money for charity than the four major sports combined. That's right, combined, folks. The, the, The PGA Tour gives more money to charity than all of those other sports. Um, you know, I also want to talk about the 2018 merchandise show. Steve uh, was kind enough to join us from down there. We'll talk about that. It officially opens tomorrow, so we'll hear what he's looking forward to seeing the, this week down there. Plus, we'll also talk about some of the things that he is looking forward to seeing in and around the game of golf and the golf industry this year and a whole lot more. Steve's going to be here with me in just a few minutes. Following him, I'm going to get a return visit from the voice of golf, Peter Kessler. I'll talk to Peter about some of the same things that they, you know, I'm going to talk to Steve about. We'll also go back to the early days with him of the Golf Channel. We're just north now of their anniversary from their original launch date, which happened on January 17, 1995. And Peter's show, Golf Talk Live, was what most of us were tuning in to see. So we'll, we'll hear about that. Plus, we'll also get Peter's thoughts on, on Tiger's return, how he thinks Tiger's going to do this year. We'll see what he thinks as well as what are the greatest shots in the history of golf because nobody knows the history of the game of golf better than Peter Kessler does so we'll hear about Peter's favorite shots of all time and uh, and a whole lot more Peter's going to join me a little bit later on in this half hour so folks more great stories coming your way tonight on this edition of Next on the Tee thank you so much for tuning in and taking the journey with me over the next hour and as you know, we are sponsored by the French Lick Resort. Let's hear a word from our good friend Steve Rondonero about what they've got going on up there. When planning your next golf buddy trip, consider something completely different for 2018 at French Lick Resort. The Eagles, Birdies, and Pigeons Package. That's right, Pigeons. Take your best shot with a day at our Pete Dye course, a day at our Donald Ross course, then top it off with an outing at our new Sporting Clay shooting range. This package is reserved for groups of 12 or more. Just you and a pal craving a world-class golf getaway? Well, our Hall of Fame package can't be beat for a pure golf experience and value. Pete Dye, Donald Ross, and our two historic hotels make a legendary combination. French Lick Resort can also help you bring your game to the next level. Check out our Early Birdies Tune-Up, our Game Changer, and Rapid Recovery Golf Academies. Start making those 2018 plans now with an online visit to FrenchLick.com. French Lick Resort, home of the 2018 Senior LPGA Championship and the Symmetra Tour Donald Ross Classic. Yeah, folks, be sure to go online to FrenchLick.com to see for yourself how great a place it is and to book your stay as well. And folks, you've heard me talking about Club Hub sensors over the last few months, and that's because it's the best portable shot tracking and swing analysis golf device out there on the market. Other shot trackers tell you what happened. Club Hub tells you what happened and why. 
Take the progress that you make on the practice tee directly to your rounds with the only device of its kind that can go on the course with you. I have club hub sensors on all of my clubs. They screw right into the tops of your grips. And I can tell you, folks, since I put the club hub sensors on my clubs, I've learned more about my swing and all of the data surrounding it than I've learned over the 40 years I've been playing the game. Because not only do you get GPS distances to the hazards and to the green, but after your round, you can look back at the images and layout of every hole of the course that you just played and see exactly where and how far you hit every shot. And no other GPS tool on the market captures that and lets you go back and review your round the way the Club Hub app does. It's available online for, through Android or iPhones. The app keeps track of your swing speed of every club in your bag, your tempo, your angle of attack, plus you get a 3D view of your swing as well. And no other rangefinder can do all that for you. Go over to clubhubgolf.com and order your set of Club Hub sensors today and enter the coupon code NEXT to get 10% off on all products at checkout. Again, clubhubgolf.com and enter the coupon code NEXT and you're going to get the best GPS and swing analysis tool on the market for a great low price and you're going to see your game in a whole new way. We're also excited to be partnering with the Ben Hogan Golf Equipment Company. They are back with the same great, great equipment that you know and love without the retail markup that you hate. Now you can buy premium Ben Hogan irons, wedges, utility irons, hybrids, and bags directly from the factory at prices your wallet will appreciate. Visit them online at BenHoganGolf.com or give them a call at 844-53-HOGAN. That's 844-534-6426 to learn more and to order your set today. Please also check out our friends at the Bobby Jones Apparel Company by going online to bobbyjones.com. Their early spring collection has arrived. The shift in season is an opportunity to change things up layer upon layer. They've added some great detail, fresh colors, new additions with genuine enduring character. See the new spring collection by going online to bobbyjones.com. And folks, as you know, we are partnering with Russ Holden and the great folks over at Caddy for a Cure. One of the most unique opportunities in the world of professional golf is available to you through Caddy for a Cure. Spend a day inside the ropes with one of the world's best players as their caddy. It's a fantastic way to have the time of your life while supporting our wounded service members and Fanconia anemia. You're going to get to walk side-by-side side with your tour player, experiencing professional golf as an insider. And in addition to the amazing experience you're going to have, you're going to get a great uh, gift package from Caddy for a Cure, which includes Under Armour logoed apparel and an eyewear package, a tour-grade caddy bib suitable for autographs and framing, a tin-cup ball-marking gift, chef's cut real jerky, and professional photographs of your day. Go online to caddyforacure.com. That's C-A-D-D-Y. F-O-R-A-C-U-R-E, caddyforacure.com to learn more. All right, now back with me, and it's humbling to say this, for an eighth appearance with me on Next on the Tee on the French Lick Resort guest line is Steve Mona. Let me remind you about Steve's background. He is the CEO of the World Golf Foundation, the organization that manages the World Golf Hall of Fame, the first tee in Golf 2020. Going back to the early 80s, Steve served as tournament director of the Northern California Golf Association. He then became assistant manager of press relations for the USGA and later the executive director of the Georgia State Golf Association. In November of 93, he became the CEO of the, of, uh, the Golf Course Superintendents Association of America, which he held until two, March of 2008, when he assumed the role as CEO of the World Golf Foundation. He is annually named by Golf Digest and Golf Inc. magazines as one of the most powerful people in the game of golf, and I'm excited he is back with me again tonight here on Next on the Tee. Hey, Steve, thanks for coming back on the show. 
It's great to be with you, Chris. I didn't realize it'd been eight times, but it's been great every time. I appreciate you saying that. So, uh, Steve, uh, I always like to start off our time together getting an update on the incredible amount of money that the PGA Tour generates for charity, as well as the impact it has on our overall economy. Can you give us an update? What were the impacts for 2017? Yeah, so from the PGA Tour perspective, uh, tour events raised about $180 million for charity in 2017, and that was an all-time record, as you mentioned. And those events helped to contribute to what overall was nearly a $4 billion impact in terms of dollars raised through golf for charity, which, as you noted at the top of the show, is more than all the major professional sports combined raised for charity. So it's an impressive number. And then the other piece of it that I think often gets overlooked is the fact that almost all the money that gets raised through golf goes to causes outside of the game of golf. So golf, we believe, really is a true community asset for the communities in which golf courses exist. And Steve, I was I was also surprised to see the President's Cup alone generated nearly $11 million for charities around the world. How is that amount of money generated just through that one event alone? So it comes from a couple sources. First, uh, PGA Tour does a great job with sponsorship, obviously, for the President's Cup. And so some of the proceeds from that inure to charities. And then in addition to that, uh, from ticket sales, uh, that too helps. And also on top of that, various sales that take place during the week, whether it be concessions, merchandise, etc. So you add it all up and that's where you get the, the number from. And the thing that's unique about the President's Cup is the captains, the assistant captains and the players all direct charitable dollars to charities of their choice as well. So it's a very unique event in that respect. And Steve, talking about merchandise, we know the PGA Merchandise Show officially kicks off tomorrow. We, we had some of the demo days going on down there today. But you know, talk about economic impact. I saw on your, on your Twitter feed, you posted that the PGA Merchandise Show will have an economic impact of $84.7 million to the Orlando area. Talk about that. Well, it's just it's referred to as the Super Bowl of golf, and it's uh, in, in terms of the golf business side of the equation, and and that's absolutely true. There'll be forty thousand people here in Orlando this week, and obviously most of those are PGA members themselves, golf professionals throughout the country. But beyond that, it brings together all of the leaders of the golf industry from all the various sectors, and that's what's of particular interest to me because I spend most of my time, the three days that I'm here in various meetings with these leaders from throughout the industry. So it's a true melting pot of all the leaders from really virtually all the sectors of the golf industry. So thinking about what you're going to be able to see and the time you're going to spend over the next three days, what are some of the things you're looking forward to either seeing from a merchandise perspective or folks that you're going to be meeting with, things you're going to be talking about? What are you looking forward to over the next three days? Yeah, so for me, it's more about uh, the different meetings and the different interactions I'm going to have. So, for instance, today we already had uh, our Golf 2020 advisory board meeting, which is about 40 individuals from all the different sectors who get together on an annual basis to talk about the major issues confronting the game. We give a broad overview on what our strategies are to address those issues. We receive feedback 
from the participants and then adjust our plans accordingly. And then over the next couple days, I'll be participating in meetings with our, uh, we have a, a group uh, that represents our CADI task force. So the whole CADI, youth CADI area is a priority for us. We'll have our diversity task force, which will meet tomorrow afternoon. Uh, diversity in the game is a huge priority for us. We have our junior task forces meeting also tomorrow. Um, that is also a priority. So that gives you, I think, a flavor of what to uh, expect, at least from my schedule's perspective. Then on Thursday, we have our We Are Golf annual membership meeting. We Are Golf is the golf industry's government relations initiative, and we'll have representatives of our firm in Washington, D.C., Forbes Tate Partners with us to talk about the year that was in 2017 and the year ahead in 2018 from a government affairs perspective. And Steve, as you talk about, you know, major issues confronting the game, what what are some of the issues you guys are going to be trying to tackle? Well, there, there are several. So let me just hit some of the, um, the high points. So we are addressing three specific demographic groups where the participation among that group in golf does not equate to what that group represents in terms of their representation of the overall population of the United States. So let me give you three quick examples. Uh, women are number one. We have a women's task force. Jane Geddes, former LPGA tour player, chairs that. Uh, we are looking at ways to bring uh, more women into the game and keep them in the game. Um, so that's one area that we're focused on. The second area, as I mentioned, is diversity. Uh, we are focused on uh bringing more people from diverse backgrounds into the game as recreational players, as competitive players, and then also very importantly as members of the golf industry in terms of those of us who work in the golf industry. And then the third area I wanted to call out uh, is our Millennial Task Force. We are seeking to increase participation in the game among uh, millennials and to bring millennials into golf so that they will stay in the game throughout their uh, lifespan and then also bring their own children into the game. So those are all three areas that we're very much focused on that we'll be having specific conversations and efforts around this week. And Steve, it's interesting. A moment ago, you mentioned caddies and looking at a caddy uh, task force or getting getting those sort of uh, getting caddies back into the game and I had Dennis Cohn on the show a couple of weeks ago and he's working on a very similar project to get caddies out there on the golf courses again so talk about talk about the idea of getting caddies back into the game of golf junior golfers it seems like would be a great way to get more kids involved and make that a game of a lifetime if they had more caddy programs to get involved with and and then really one of the other things you and I've talked about in the past are the health benefits that are associated with the game of golf and boy it just seems like if you had more caddies and got and more people could walk and had a caddy, boy, it's just sort of like a win-win. It's, it's good for your health. It's good to walk. It's good to have kids involved in caddy programs. Talk about the initiative around trying to develop more caddy programs. Sure. So, uh, and you, you mentioned the key word, and that is um, youth. This is about youth caddies, and this is about, and I want to be clear about this, bringing young people into the game who otherwise would not necessarily be exposed to the game through 
caddy programs. And if you go back a couple generations ago, this was the way that many people entered the game who otherwise wouldn't. They became caddies, youth caddies, at local golf facilities, and they developed uh, an understanding of the game. It was a good source of income for them. They ultimately learned the game. They became lifelong golfers, and some even attained college scholarships through programs such as the Evan Scholars Program, sponsored by the Western Golf Association. And as time has gone on, uh, there still are caddy programs uh, throughout the country. They're, they tend to be in pockets. They tend to be in the Northeast, uh, the Midwest, and there are other programs uh, scattered about, but that's the highest concentration. But our belief is that we have overlooked for a number of years the fact that young people can enter the game as caddies, and that is our motivation behind this. And we believe, as I said, that we can develop lifelong golfers. We can develop people who later give back to the game um, by virtue of the fact that they entered it through the caddy ranks, so to speak. You mentioned the health benefits of golf. That's also a big priority. And obviously walking contributes to that. But the interesting thing about golf is there are health benefits, whether you walk or whether you ride. And we're, uh, in terms of our focus here, trying to merely communicate that Playing 18 holes of golf or whatever you can play, if it's nine holes or less even, uh, will create certain health benefits. And so we are trying to overcome a perception that there are no particular health benefits associated with playing a game, but in fact there are. So obviously the, the best way to maximize the health benefits is to walk 18 holes, uh, but not everybody can do that for a variety of reasons. So even if you can't, there are health benefits to be inured. And we're just trying to communicate that to people and help them understand that golf can be a source of contributing to one's health and wellness. Yeah, it's it's interesting because I I read a recent study that the University of Edinburgh did in conjunction with golf and the health project uh, project that's going on and did a study suggesting that, you know, even going to a golf tournament, right? Because if you're going to go watch a tournament, Typically, you're going to walk around the golf course as well. So you get the walking benefits of, you know, watching a golf tournament and being around the golf course. That way you get the health benefits of of walking or riding, whether you're playing the game of golf or you're just out with somebody else who's playing the game of golf. There seems like there's a lot of health benefits that we don't really realize or people don't necessarily associate with the game. But studies are actually showing that there's a lot to be had, right? Absolutely. And that that project you mentioned, we actually – um, help to fund that through the World Golf Foundation. But what you talked about specifically is a study that was done last year in uh, the UK uh, about the health benefits of spectating. And as you pointed out, Chris, most people who watch a golf tournament walk and follow players around or walk around the golf course. Golf is by far the number one sport for health benefits associated with spectating. Because if you think about it, you go to a football game, you sit in your seat the whole time or a baseball game or a basketball game. Whereas in golf, now some people will sit, uh, say for instance, around the 18th green or something. But for the most part, most people are walking around the golf course. And um, that is something that a lot of people don't think about, but there are definite benefits associated with spectating at a golf tournament. Steve, I want to get back to to one thing that you mentioned a little earlier. Uh, one more on the on the PGA Merchandise Show. You talked about forty thousand people 
are going to be down there for this event. And I'm guessing this isn't your first rodeo, right? The first time around you've been at a PGA merchandise show. I'm sure you've been going to a few of these. Talk about the growth. Would you, do you remember the first one you attended? First one I attended was in 1983. Uh, I was executive director, newly minted, of the Georgia State Golf Association and came here uh, from Atlanta. So uh, however many, what's that, uh, 35 years ago? And I think I've been to everyone since. So um, it is incredible to see the growth since then. Yeah, what was the first one like? What was it like in 83? Well, uh, very different than today. I mean, just if you think about it from the standpoint of the exhibits, for one thing, uh, the technology in the game was very different then. Um, the kind of multimedia, if you will, was very different then. There wasn't a lot of multimedia, if you will. Um, I've always been, as you know, Chris, a golf uh, aficionado and somebody that can't get enough of it. So for me, every time it's great. But in, just in terms of the sophistication of the exhibits and the technology associated with it, um, it's, it's very different today than it was uh, back in those days. But nonetheless, I would say this, that um, just the general level of excitement and buzz and enthusiasm, it's, re- it's remained pretty stable all those years. I mean, every year, the thing that's great about the PGA show is it's the first big event of the year. It brings the golf industry together. There's almost always a sense of, sense of optimism. The year's getting ready to get started. Everybody's really excited about what's to come, both from the standpoint of the competitive side of the game, but also the business side of the game. The golf technologies evolved so much over time. Um, there's just a tremendous amount of excitement. It's just great being part of it. it it's a little bit like being a, a kid, and uh, this is apropos being in Orlando and just being let loose in um, Disney World for several days and kind of be on your own and go wherever you want to go. That's kind of how I feel with the PGA show. Steve, as as we kick off this this new year, do, do you have something, you know, on your 2018 wish list that you'd like to see happen within the game, maybe with a player, maybe with an issue in the game, maybe equipment-wise? Is there something you're looking ahead to for 2018 and really uh, anticipating seeing or doing? Well, I'll tell you, there's one, there's one thing um, that's that happened in late 17 that um, – Got a little bit of airtime, but not a lot. And I don't think everybody really thought through the implications of it. And that is when um, the International Olympic Committee voted to continue golf in its Olympic program for 2024 and beyond. And and nothing is forever. I get that. But golf is now part of the uh, Summer Olympic Games. It's a a sport that's going to continue to be in the games for a long period of time. That was really significant because – a lot of people don't realize that we were only in for two Olympic Games, 2016 and 2020. And then after that, uh, there was no guarantee that we would continue to go forward. And now we are. And so that's number one. Number two, you saw in 2016 how some players elected not to play uh, in the Olympic competition. And there were various reasons for that. But I can assure you that that will not be the case in 2020 when it's played in Tokyo and then moving forward beyond that. Um, when it eventually comes to Paris and Los Angeles and and then beyond those uh, Olympic Games. So I cannot underestimate for your listeners the importance of golf being part of the Olympics because it does a couple things. One is it puts golf on a completely different platform 
than it otherwise would have from the standpoint of the viewers who tune into the Olympics, uh, who have interest in other sports besides golf, can be now exposed to golf. And then there's there are huge numbers of casual fans that really only watch the Olympics and really aren't even really all that much of sports fans who will be a, uh, who will be exposed to golf. So that's that's one piece. But the other piece that also doesn't get much airtime that's really important is by virtue of golf being part of the Olympic Games, the IOC now essentially provides funding to all of the different governing bodies to help to support player development efforts for whatever Olympic sport that that governing body oversees. So in the case of golf, it's golf in that particular country. So we're here in the United States. That's really candidly not that much of an issue. We have a very sophisticated golf market. We have more than our fair share of player development programs. But you take a country that where golf is not part of the culture, now all of a sudden the whatever governing body exists to, to oversee golf in that country now has funding to establish programs to bring people into the game. The implications of that are going to be huge. So that that got not much notoriety, but I think that was very significant, and I'm looking forward to see the results of that over the next several years. Steve, one more before we let you go, and we're inside 100 days until this year's National Golf Day, which is going to be on Wednesday, April 25th, up on Capitol Hill. Talk about, talk about that event this year and what your goals are for that event for 2018. Well, first, from the standpoint of just the event itself, uh, it's really going to be a great two days, really. National Golf Day really is now two days. We're going to have uh, on the, the day before uh, – for the second year, a national public service project where about a hundred or more uh, of us will descend upon the National Mall in Washington to do uh, maintenance actually on the mall. We'll be working on the actual grounds there. We did that last year. It was fantastic. I can tell you it was one of these classic before and after pictures. Uh, it was that significant and the same will be true again this year. Immediately following that, we will go to the National Press Club where we're going to announce the uh, National Economic Impact Study results. We do that once every five years. So when you talk about and I talk about how golf's a $70 billion a year industry, et cetera, that's where that data comes from. So we'll be announcing the newest results of that. Uh, we're going to have Fox News uh, evening anchor Brett Baer is going to speak at our um, – our kickoff briefing session uh, that afternoon, and then we're going to have a reception uh, in the U.S. Capitol building uh, with legislators and members of our coalition uh, that evening. And then the next day, we'll kick off National Golf Day with the first tee congressional breakfast. We'll have a uh, kickoff event uh, where we'll formally kick off uh, National Golf Day, and then we'll span out across Capitol Hill. There'll be about 150 maybe as many as 175, maybe even closing in on 200 people this year that will be engaging in meetings with members of Congress. We'll have uh, at least one meeting at the White House, and then um, certain of the agencies, such as the EPA, will meet uh, there as well. In terms of uh, our goals, they're really twofold, Chris. One is we want to continue with the education that we've been attempting to accomplish over the last decade now, to help members of Congress and their key staffs understand the real scope 
of the golf industry and what golf represents to America in terms of its way of life, in terms of its economic impact, its charitable impact, all the things you and I have talked about. So that's number one. And then number two is we have some specific issues that we want to move along and attempt to uh, bring to resolution. Uh, we, I think we've talked about that in previous years. I won't get into all the granular issues, but we have several issues spanning from labor issues to environmental issues to tax issues that we'll be tackling uh, as well. So it will be a great couple days in Washington. And I can tell you, after now, this will be our 11th year, we are making a difference. People in Washington, they know us now. They understand our key talking points. Uh, they like to see us come around. And um, we're seeing the benefits of our efforts over the last decade. Well, kudos to you, Steve, and the whole organization that is going up there and, and continuing this work because it's fantastic stuff. I can't thank you enough for taking time out of your night to come back and be a part of the show. I always enjoy getting to spend some time with you. Let our listeners know, Steve, how can they stay up to date with all the great things that you're doing, whether it's online or it's on social media? Yeah, so probably the, um, the easiest way to stay up to date with us is through um, our We Are Golf Coalition. So um, I, I would just commend your listeners just to – uh, tune in to us, if if you will, uh, through our uh, wearegolf.org website. And from there, uh, they can uh, become connected with all of our various social media, I'm sorry, social media um, handles uh, as well. So that would be the one-stop shop, so to speak. And then they can be directed in a lot of different uh, areas by just uh, visiting that site. All right, there you go. Steve, thank you so much again for being a part of the show tonight. Enjoy the rest of the week there at the PGA Merchandise Show, and uh, hopefully we get the opportunity to catch up with you again real soon. Well, I look forward to it. Thanks, Chris. I appreciate being part of your show and uh, appreciate what you also do for the golf industry. Thanks very much. All right. All right. Thank you, Steve. Take care. All the best to you and your family. We'll catch up soon. Thanks, Chris. That is Steve Mona. Again, look online. You, the Twitter handle is just like the organization, wearegolf.org, and at wearegolf. You can find it there right on Twitter and stay up to date with the great things they're doing. It's amazing, folks. Again, the economic impact that the game of golf has, the uh, the charitable contributions that the game of golf does, again, more than the four major sports combined. All great things, you know, the major initiatives that uh, that they're undertaking are all right on. Can't wait to get uh, Steve back on the show here, how it goes, how it goes up, at, uh, up on Capitol Hill a little bit later on this year. He is fantastic, and they're doing great things. All right, before I get to my next guest, Peter Kessler, I want to give a shout-out to a few of our sponsors. One, as you've heard me talking about over the last several months, Club Hub Sensors, right? The best portable shot tracking and swing analysis golf device out there. Other shot trackers tell you what happened. Club Hub tells you what happened and why. Take the progress that you make on the practice tee directly to your rounds with the only device of its kind that can go on the course with you. I have club hub sensors on all of my clubs. They screw right into the tops of your grips, and I can tell you, since I put the club hub sensors on my clubs, I have learned more about my swing and all of the data surrounding it than I have learned over the 40 years I've been playing the game. Not only do you get GPS distances to the hazards and to the greens, but after your round, you can look back at the images and layout of every hole in the course that you just played and see exactly where and how 
how far you hit every shot. And no other GPS tool on the market captures that and lets you go back and review your round the way the Clubhub app does. It's available for Android or iPhones. The app keeps track of your swing speed of every club in your bag, your tempo, your angle of attack, plus you get a 3D view of your swing as well. And no other rangefinder can do all of that for you. Go over to clubhubgolf.com and order your set of Clubhub sensors today. And enter the coupon code NEXT to get 10% off on all products at checkout. Again, clubhubgolf.com, enter the coupon code NEXT, and you're going to get the best GPS swing analysis tool on the market for a great low price and see your game in a whole new way. Also, I want to remind you about our friends over at Power Bar. Energy and focus on the course is a sensor whether you're playing, you know, in a golf tournament, your club championship, your weekend four ball with your buddies, no matter what you're playing. Par Bar is the golfer's nutritional bar that can help you with both energy and focus. Eat some before the first tee and the rest every three holes until it's finished, and you're going to play with more energy and focus to win. Par Bar was developed by a lifelong golfer and a food scientist to help all golfers play their best. Go online to parbargolf.com. And folks, as you know, this last segment of the show is is sponsored by our friends over at the PGA Tour Superstore. Let's hear just a quick word about them. This segment of the show is brought to you by the PGA Tour Superstore. See why golfers everywhere are proud to call PGA Tour Superstore their golf pro shop. Visit them online at PGASuperstore.com. Now, back to you, Chris. And now back with me on the French Lick Resort guest line is the voice of golf, Peter Kessler. Be sure to follow Peter on his Facebook page and on Twitter as well, at Peter Kessler. And also be sure to check out Peter's podcast. It's called Reading the Break, which can be found over on SoundCloud. And you can check it out on our homepage as well, on nextonthetee.net. No one knows more about the history of the game of golf than Peter Kessler does. He's interviewed every major golf figure of the 20th and 21st centuries. When you layer on top of that his magical voice and thousands of great stories, well, then you've really got someone, and someone who is very special, and that's Peter Kessler. There are some great contributors, folks, to the game of golf that are in the World Golf Hall of Fame. People like Frank Trichinian and Peter Alice, Henry Longhurst. Well, they need a fourth bust in there created for Peter Kessler. He is just a treasure of the game of golf, just as much as anybody else has ever been. And I am honored that he is back with me tonight here on Next on the Tee. Good evening, Peter. Happy New Year, my friend. I'm writing down everything you said as furiously and as quickly as I can. I think I've got it. I'm going to read it to myself every morning when I get up to start my day in a really great way. Thank you, buddy. (laughs) Absolutely, Peter. So, uh, Peter, I was out on your Twitter page, and I saw that you have Dustin Johnson's 436-yard tee shot that uh, he almost hold, by the way, as the greatest shot of all time, which is surprising to me. Help me understand why you think so. I didn't say that at all. I said pretty much just the opposite, that it was a totally lucky shot. I said it was downhill. I said it was downwind. I said he got 100 yards of roll down. He got a carom 40 yards to the right. And there was nothing about the shot that he'll ever remember, that anybody in the field will ever remember, or anybody who follows golf will ever remember. It was Brandel Chambly who said it was the greatest shot ever. So I took exception to that, and I said exactly what I just said now. And then how about this? Two days ago, Dustin Johnson comes out and says, well, it was a totally lucky shot. He said, first of all, you got to remember it was straight downhill. I had a 30-yard win behind my back. It caromed 40 yards to the right. And it was just one of those things. I don't normally hit the ball that 
that far, but all those factors combined to give me a really happy and lucky result. And so I put that on Twitter and I said, that is verbatim what I said when he hit that shot. So I thought nothing of the shot at the time other than that it was a lucky shot. I have since said that even players who can't break 100 know the difference between a good shot and a lucky shot. So when a a figure on the Golf Channel with a national platform who went on the PGA Tour doesn't know the difference between a great shot and a totally fluky lucky shot in a tournament that not one of your listeners right now can email you and say what the name of the tournament is. Not one person knows what the name of that tournament was, and it took place on the side of a hill in Hawaii. Important shots and great shots are done in major championships by by great players at critical moments. That was complete nonsense, not worth discussing on any level whatsoever. Yeah, and that's and that's how I would have guessed that you you, you would have thought about it. Knowing you, I, th- I think the way that I do, you know, I I would have guessed, you know, when when you, when Peter Kessler puts together his list of you know whatever five or ten greatest shots of all time, they probably all came in a major tournament to win in a final round or something along those lines. I, I would guess, you know, something like a, a you know a, a Nicholas one iron at Pebble Beach or the Hogan one iron at the Open at Marion or you know Tiger's chip in 05 or Nicholas's putt uh, on the 16th and the 75 Masters. Where where are where are you with the, with with the top shots of all time? What what would you put in your top two or three? Well, I mean, you know. Saying that the Dustin Johnson shot was anything special is like saying the greatest pass Tom Brady ever threw was in a 38-7 blowout in week three. It's like, what, what, what are you talking about? So obviously the greatest shots of all time are, were... Bobby Jones making a 12-footer on the last hole at the U.S. Open in 1929 at Wingfoot after just making a pair of sevens to throw away a lead to get into the playoff the next day, a 36-hole playoff that he won by 23 shots. Then I would look at Gene Sarazen's double eagle in 1935 when he holed his turf rider forward from 230 yards on the 15th hole at Augusta National for a two playing with Walter Hagen, who said, hurry up, Gene, I've got a date tonight. Bobby Jones was watching from behind the green, one of 25 people. Byron Nelson was playing 17, and he saw the ball go in. So four seminal figures out of 25 or 27 people saw that ball go into the hole. But what people forget is he still had to make three pars to get into the playoff. And on the 18th hole, he had to hit four wood into the green. None of this, you know, sand wedge nonsense like they do today because the ball goes you know, hundreds of yards too far. He had a four-wood into the last hole, had a 40-foot putt. He shook it down there to four feet, rattled in the four-footer to get into the playoff, which he won the next day. I would vote for Arnold's drive on the first hole of the U.S. Open in the fourth round in 1960, which led him to birdie five of the first six holes and catapult him to a final round 65 when he was seven shots behind to go ahead and beat a young Jack, 20-year-old Jack, Nicholas by two shots, who shot a 39 on the last nine just because he didn't putt well. He was playing with Hogan, who had hit 34 greens that day. They still played the double rounds on Saturdays at the U.S. Open through 1964 when Ken Venturi won that year. And Jack told me he had a two-footer on one of the holes on the last nine. And he saw a ball mark, a pitch mark between his ball and the hole. And he didn't fix it 
because he didn't want to hold up Hogan, and he missed the putt, and of course he never did that again. And I would say Jack's drive to the 90th hole at the old course at St. Andrews in 1970 against Doug Sanders when he drove it through the green on the par 4 18th and got it up and down for the winning birdie to win by a shot. I would say Jack Nicklaus's four iron to the 15th hole in the 1986 Masters that he hit 10 feet left of the hole and made for an eagle three and then went birdie birdie and ended up winning the golf tournament. And Jack told me later that the easy thing about the four iron from 220 yards or so was that it didn't matter if it finished 10 feet to the right of the hole or 10 feet left of the hole. And I'm thinking, who's good enough to hit a four iron within 10 feet of their target? And I've mentioned that to two dozen pros and they all said, man, I can't do that with a lob wedge. How do you do that with a four iron over water? with the sun in your eyes and the golf tournament on the line and you're 46 years old, 10 feet either way because the putts were equal in difficulty. That's why it didn't matter if it was right or to the left. I would nominate Sandy Lyles, 7-iron from the fairway bunker at the Masters that he hit to 15 feet and made the putt, won the golf tournament. I would say Nick Faldo's 2-iron on 13 in 1996 in the final round against Greg Norman. Uh, The tournament was still uh, undecided, even though Nick now had the lead. He had picked up the six shots plus that he was behind at the beginning of the fourth round. And he had a very severe downhill side hill lie. And we talked about the shot because at first he took out five wood. And I said, so why didn't you hit it? And he said, I don't know. He said, I... I got over the five wood, and all I could see left was OB, and all I could see right was the water. So I took out a two iron, and and I thought that I could hit that in the middle of the green. I said, but isn't that a harder shot club to hit, downhill, side hill, lie, than a five wood that's got a lot more loft and a lot more forgiveness? And he said, yes, but I couldn't get the OB or the water out of my mind. I would take Tiger's chip to 16 and the final round of the 05 Masters, where he looked at the shot over for five minutes and picked a shot. He later told me that there was the size of a quarter, and he said he actually landed the ball on the spot the size of the quarter. Certainly one of the greatest shots ever hit. Uh, so, you know, there there's a list right there. I think the, uh, you know, if you want to pick something recent, um, I would say that the eagle putt that Jordan Spieth hit at the Open Championship last year was one of the most timely absolutely unbelievable daggers of all time in major championships that helped him finish five under on the last five and beat Matt Kuchar, who was two under on the last five. So that was an audacious putt and, you know, one of the super-duper shots. And Jack Nicklaus, 1972, U.S. Open, 71st hole, hits the flagstick with a one-iron, the ball drops four inches away, was pretty special. Um, so there's a pretty good list for you. I don't know how many that is, but it's a whole bunch. <laughs> it's a whole bunch. Uh, those are all fantastic. And, and Peter, I also saw a back and forth you had with someone on Twitter about Mark Rowe, about him being the most dishonest player ever. Talk, tell Remind our listeners who Mark Rowe is and why you think so. Well, Mark Rowe is a journeyman English pro. 
he was the one who famously forgot to switch cards with Jesper Parnovic at the 2003 Open Championship, and Mark shot 66, and Jesper shot 81, but they didn't switch cards, so Jesper got the 66 in theory and signed for a lower score than he had, so he's DQ'd, and Mark's signed for a higher score than what he had in the 81 stuck and I played in the 2006 Dunhill Links Championship which is like the Pebble Beach Pro-Am and you play the old course, Carnoustie and Kings Barnes on the first three days and then the 20 low two-man teams out of 168 two-man teams get to play the old course again on Sunday with the 55 low pros and ties. And in 02, I played with Thomas LeVay, and I was a six. And in the first round, I shot 75 at the old course. I shot 75 at Kings Barnes. I shot 79 at Carnoustie. And we made the cut but he missed the cut. And he was the only player who got to play on Sunday who missed the individual cut. And I shot another 75 on Sunday at the old course, and I won him $25,000 that he wasn't going to get. And I said, walked up to him after the round, and he couldn't have been happier about the whole thing and thanked me a million times. And I said, so where's my cut? And he said, oh, did you did you recently turn pro? So every time <laughs> I see him, we, we have a good giggle about that. So I'm in 06. I'm playing with uh, Spanish player Francesco Luna, I think was who it was, and uh, Mark Rowe was playing in his final event of the European tour of his whole career, and he was playing with Billy Getty, the great-great-great-grandson of the famous William Getty, who never stopped talking, and Rowe never stopped talking. It was, oh, my goodness gracious. So we're playing the old course in the first round, and I'm playing okay, and my partner's playing okay, and we come to the most famous hole on the course, the par 4 17th. It's a par 5 for regular play, but a par 4 in in the Open Championship. And so Rowe hits like most players do on that course is drive into the left rough because when you play off of the 17th tee you got to hit it over the corner of the old course hotel and it's just a very daunting shot and you know if you push it a tad you could hit the hotel and if you clear the corner of the hotel and you push it you could end up out of bounds so most players miss left so I missed short and left and hit a second shot just short of the green with a hybrid. And Mark Rowe, being a professional, was longer than I was, and he was in the left rough. And he didn't notice that I was standing 10 feet behind him when he bent down and just picked his ball up out of a horrible lie in the left rough and then called to my partner who was 75 yards further down the hole he'd already hit his second shot and was walking towards the green and Mark Rowe waved his arms like hey I'm taking a drop and Luna just you know waved his hand like hey do whatever you have to do so Rowe takes a drop you have to remember it's the old course there's no such thing as an embedded ball at the old course the ground is so hard at the old course that your feet the first time you play the course actually hurt the soles of your feet hurt i've never played anywhere else that that's the case it's concrete you couldn't have an embedded ball lie if you put the ball on the ground and stepped on it it wouldn't go down so he picks up the ball out of a bad lie drops it then bends down again and picks the ball up again and puts it on and puts it in a great spot um, on, on a big tuft of grass and plays his shot to the green. So 
I'm stupefied. And then he turns around and he sees I'm standing there and that I've obviously seen the whole thing. And he totally imploded. We got down to the green, and I had laid my second shot just short of the green, and Roe, with the perfect lie, had hit the middle of the green with a good shot, probably about a six iron. And I hit a running chip from the right side of the green to about 10 feet past the hole, which I had for four for three, uh, because that you're getting, I'm getting a shot on that hole for my team. So I, so it's my turn to putt, and I go over to my ball, to my marker, and I start to put the ball down, and Roe goes, are you going to putt? Are you going to putt? Peter, what are you doing? What are you doing, man? Let's go. We've got to keep this thing moving along. Are you going to hit your putt, or you're not going to hit your putt? And I looked at him, and I gave him a look that said, we've got some serious issues here, and he shut up, and I went ahead and hit my putt and made my putt. We finished the 18th hole. We go into the scoring trailer. So I know he is DQ City uh, because of what he did by by twice doing something illegal on the 17th hole and telling my playing partner, Luna, who was keeping the card, that he made a four. And I stood right there to make sure I heard him say it. So I watched Luna write down the four. We get into the scoring trailer. And... For the first time that I've ever played in a tournament, including the Dunhill Links with LeVay or anybody else, I didn't personally check the scorecard after Luna handed it to me and said, this is fine, you can sign it. Normally, I was meticulous, the exact opposite of Roberto DiVincenzo, who, of course, didn't really look at his scorecard that he signed at the Masters in 68, and if he had looked at it, he would have seen the fact that there was an error on the card that he was given a par instead of a birdie on the 17th hole, but he had a history, including the day before playing with Bob Goby, who won the Masters tournament, Goby said, uh, I heard that Goby said, he never saw anybody look at a card so quickly. He said, Roberto didn't even look at the card, he just signed it. So I signed the card. It starts to rain, so we stay inside the scoring trailer till the rain stops. The woman who's got the cards, the official scorer, is sitting there looking at our cards, checking the hole by hole, and it gets ready to stop raining, and you can feel it letting up, and all of a sudden she said, everybody stay where they are, nobody move. And we all said, what's up? And she said, there's something wrong with your scorecard, Peter and Mr. Luna. And I said, what's the problem? And she said, well, it looks like two holes have been juxtaposed, and I can see erasure marks, and one hole was erased and put in a number at, that was made on a different hole, and the same thing happened on that different hole. They put that the score was transposed with another hole. So if you sign that card and you leave the scoring trailer, that's the key here, if you leave the trailer, then it's a done deal. As long as you're inside the scoring tent, they can fix anything that they need to fix if there's a hole-by-hole hole mistake. So if it hadn't rained, we wouldn't have known that Mark Rowe erased the two scores, transposed them, and Luna looked at him like, what, what in the world was that, Mr. Rowe? And Rowe looks at him and goes, oh, I'm such a stupid, I can't believe it, what an idiot I am. And I sat there and I thought, do I call for a rules official? Do I bust him? It's an easy bust. He definitely gets DQ'd because he signed that card now. And we're getting ready to leave the trailer. And should I let him leave the trailer and call in a rules official? And I thought, you know, it's his last tournament ever. He'll be totally humiliated if I call him out on this. I'm a guest here. 
I don't want to cause a ruckus. I'm very good friends with the guy who runs the tournament, Johan Rupert, who owns Knightsbridge, which is Dunhill and Cartier and a number of other luxury brands. I had played in the tournament several times. I had made the cut with LeVay. I knew a lot of people there, and I didn't want to make a scene for me. So I didn't want to humiliate Mark, and I didn't want to cause a ruckus. And I never regretted anything that ever happened to me on a golf course more than not busting him at the time and not doing the right thing. And what happened subsequently was, because you're paired with the same other twosome for the first three days, I had to play golf with him for two more days. And he did everything he could to make me uncomfortable. If I got over a putt, he made sure he got in my peripheral vision. If I asked him to move the putter, uh, to move the ball, uh, one, one putter head one way or another so I could putt without touching his marker, he would take the whole putter, and he had like a 48-incher, and he would do it with the length of the putter instead of the head of the putter, so that when he went to replace it, he replaced it three and four and five feet closer. He just moved the shaft to the right or the left, depending on how he could get closer to the hole. His partner never said anything. Luna knew what was going on, never said a word. And I just couldn't believe it. I didn't let him ruin my week, but it was the most dishonest display of cheating I'd ever, ever seen. And I can't even think what's in second place, other than an incident years ago when... Uh, two guys were in the finals of my club championship, and one of the guys hit his ball into the rough, and we all looked for it for four and a half minutes, and he screamed out, I've got it, just as his opponent screamed, I've got it. So he dropped the ball in the rough, and he got busted, and he quit the club, and he literally moved, and nobody ever saw him again. So that was pretty awful. But this wow. was crazy. This is a professional tournament. I think Mark finished around 25th for the tournament. And after the tournament was over, I went up to him and I told him everything that I saw happen. And I told him I was now going to go to the tournament organizers, that I knew it wouldn't affect his standing because it was after the fact and everything has been signed. But I wanted to make sure that the people who ran the tournament and the European tour knew exactly what they had been dealing with. And when I went to the organizers of the tournament, they said to me, we know all about him. And so that's what happened with Mark Rowe. And the only reason I raised it was because a writer friend of ours, Scott Michaud, told the story on Twitter about Alice Cooper stealing his golf ball, that they were playing in an event, and Scott hit his ball, and it landed on Alice Cooper's tee. And he saw it land there. And he walked over, and then he said, does anybody see a ball? And Alice Cooper went, no, nope, no, nope, haven't seen anything. And the writer in his group, um, who was uh, Steve Elling, later confirmed at lunch to Scott that Alice, in fact, had actually picked up the ball and put it in his pocket, and it was now a free Callaway, and that Alice had lied about it. And I said, you think that's good? Have I got a story for you? And so I told the Mark <laughs> Rowe story, and some people said, why did you bring it up? And I said, because somebody bought up a, a cheating story, and I said, I've got one too. And I said, and I made it public at the time to the tournament organizers, and I said, and it's 100% in my book, and I pray, I pray, I pray that Mark Rowe will come after me in some way when he sees this thing in print or when he hears that I put it on Twitter. I just defy him to come into my direction, and I welcome that so much. Interesting story, Peter. Um, 
You mentioned book. Uh, you've talked in the past about writing a book and putting one together. It sounds like it's coming to be uh, more and more to uh, fruition. It's the weirdest thing, Chris. You know, I, 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 I banged out about 50 Word document pages in early June, and then I just got stuck over the summer, and I couldn't figure out where to go next, and I couldn't figure out what to do next, and I had so many options, and I had writer's block, and I've been working on another project that wasn't going as well as I wanted, so you really need peace of mind to write, and I've done everything in golf. I've I, I've, I've written, I've created, I've hosted, I've produced, I've directed, um, I've made infomercials, I've made commercials, I've made DVDs, I've made 1,300 television shows, I've made 1,700 radio shows. I mean, there isn't anything that I haven't done, literally, of any job that you can do in the sport. Wrote long-form interviews for Golf Magazine, some of which were particularly highly celebrated, like the one with Phil Mickelson, where he said Tiger was stuck playing with inferior equipment, which got a big rise in the golf community, and just before Phil won his first Masters in '04. And writing is the hardest thing. And then somebody, I, I decided to start doing Twitter, and I decided I was going to create a Twitter character for myself, a much edgier version of my normal day-to-day -day self, much like the way I just described the Mark Rose story, which I'm sure was a little edgy because it was a really uncomfortable thing and it upset me very much. So I thought, okay, I'm going to create this character. And I had, I'm friends with Sean Connery, and when Sean and I first met, the first 20 minutes that we met, there was nobody else there, and he started to tell me he knew exactly how I did my TV shows. So this is going back 15 years. He figured out how I did, figured out how I was going to write the show. He knew that I even practiced certain sentences out loud. But he characterized me as an actor who was a golf savant. He said, you've created a character. He said, you're not an interviewer. He said, you've created this, this, this incredible character to handle all these situations and all these people. And he said, and it was brilliant. And so I decided, well, I'm going to create a character on Twitter. So I decided to come up with the edgiest version of myself and sort of a jerk sometimes, except when it's golf history, in which case I just lay it out for people to get it because I know quite a bit of golf history. And so what happened was I would get all these people in my face after I started making these edgy tweets, and it would remind me of a story. You know, like somebody would say something about Mo Norman, and I'd go, oh, I forgot that story. And I'd make a little note as I was tweeting for like 90 minutes. So after like 90 minutes of tweeting and responding to all the stuff that was, you know, just coming at me after I would say something was starting to remind me of other stuff. And after 90 minutes, I would have like 10 notes on a piece of paper. I would get off Twitter and I would come upstairs and Twitter makes you be sharp with your writing because you've got a limited number of characters or it makes you be something. You either have to pick a point of view. You either have to develop a character. You either have to explain golf history. You either have to take down Brandle Chambly, which is a great pleasure, even though he's a friend of mine. But, you know, people write to me and go, Brandle just said, Brandle said, just said this, you're the only one who can answer him. You got to do it right away. And I'd go look for his tweet and then I'd get right in his face. And um, so it's been helping me with my writing. And so I've been writing more and like the prologue, which was eight pages is now like 23 pages. So can end up working out like that because 23 pages of word document writing is like 40 pages in a book. 
and a few publishers said you want to do 80,000 words, which is 300 or 350 pages of a book. And I'm a little bit more than halfway there now, and I've got a huge list on my phone every, you know, of, of little things on that little notepad they have in the iPhone and on legal yellow pads. And so each day that I do write, which is not every day, and I'm still having some issues about the discipline of writing and just sitting down and doing. I mean, there's nothing, there's no getting around it. You put your fanny in the seat and you do it and you do it and you do it. Now you either write for three hours or you decide you're going to write X number of pages, but you set a goal, you know, and I've talked to a million writer friends of mine and they all have a different way of doing things. Some guys write one page a day and know that if they do it for a year, they've got a book, 365 pages. Other guys like Jim Dodson write for three hours and then he goes on the porch, you know, and uh, smokes a cigar and has a drink and forgets about it until the next day. Another friend of mine said, whenever you start writing, just keep writing, just keep writing, just keep writing. Don't worry if you've already repeated it in another chapter because you've gone back into a chapter. He said, go, 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 go. And he said, then you put it on the windowsill overnight and you come back in the morning and you take a look at where you are and then you figure out what you need to rearrange. He said, but once you're on a roll, don't do anything to stop it. And he said, the hardest thing is to go back is to not go back and fix punctuation and, and typos. He said, so some people do and some people don't. I do. I, I, I can't go if I don't fix the stuff that, that I just wrote. And uh, But I'm learning the windowsill technique. And uh, so the book's coming along and it's a lot different than I originally intended. It's uh, It's got tons of stories, but it's got some edgy stuff like the row stuff. And it's also got, you know, I spent two weeks with Sean Connery playing golf, so I've got all kinds of great Bond stuff about the women, about all sorts of cool stuff. And Sean was a wonderful golfer. He was an 18, where he was about 70 and 71 the two years we played, but he would always break 90 with his 18. And he very rarely said, give me a seven. He he could get in front of most greens in just in one stroke under regulation. He, you know, if he, he could get it within 50 yards on a par four, but he was a really good little wedge player. And he left himself a lot of 15-footers from 50 yards. And sometimes he made them and sometimes he didn't. But he was almost always in the hole, and he made lots and lots of fives and the occasional four. And he was shooting 86 or 87, but really good short game, really understood that he had to rely on good pitches from 35 to 50 yards in particular and he rarely dumped one he rarely bladed one he rarely left 30 feet he was really good about leaving 15 feet or less and it was a pleasure and he was fantastic company and i was told not to bring up bond but after he blew smoke at me for 20 minutes literally gushed he said i'm your biggest fan i'm thinking what is going on here so as soon as he did that and we shared a card on the first tee we we got off the first tee in the cart and i said to him so double o and nobody's apparently ever called him double o so i said so double o who is the greatest Bond chick of them all? And that, and he gave me a look, and we talked about it for the whole round. So we, and then, and then my host, who had invited me to play with Sean, heard me call him Double O, and he just about went apoplectic, and he said to me, "You can't call him that." I said. You tell you ask Sean if it's okay if I call him double O and I'm sure you're gonna get a Peter can call me anything he wants answer. We've got we've got a mutual respect between us and we did and it was very, very cool. So I'm not gonna ask you to reveal it because I want everyone to buy the book once you're done with it. 
does he, can you talk about, can you say, you know, who the girl was? I mean, you don't have to talk, but are you going to say who the okay, girl was? Uh, the the only thing I'll give away is at one time you also dated her. So if you can go ahead and figure that out, then you can tell everybody who it was. But it was one of the all-time greats, and uh, it was uh, Ursula Andress, who was uh, Honey Rider in Dr. No, which was the first Bond film. And they were in a private compound in Kingston, Jamaica, and she was married to John Derrick, who was a photographer and an actor and a producer and a director. And uh, Derrick broke into the compound one night and uh, discovered Sean and Ursula, and it was a very interesting scene, the rest of which you'll have to read about. Absolutely. A couple more, Peter, before I let you go. Sure, buddy. President Bill Clinton. President Clinton was an avid fan of your show, Golf Talk Live, on the Golf Channel. He taped it every day. One day, the White House has, you know, the VCR breaks, so he can't tape the show. Do you mind telling that story? Well, I think you told it. I, when uh, he, his golf teacher was a guest, I can't remember his name, on one of my shows, uh, the teaching show that I had, Academy Live on the Golf Channel, where I had 400 teachers over eight years, and my game went from a 2 to a 22. I literally couldn't play after a year, and it was just too much information, and I had had one swing thought literally for 20 years, and it was disaster, Bill, but he said, Clinton watches all your shows, and I said, seriously? And I said, well, I'd like to meet him. I said, because I'd like him to come do a show. I said, you know, he's an avid golfer, and we won't talk politics or anything that would be uncomfortable for him, just like I do with everybody else. Never put anybody on the spot except Arnold once, and that didn't work out very well. And so I, uh, so I, he told me, he said he, he tapes the Monday night show, not all my shows, just the interview show called Golf Talk Live, where I had every great player of the last century except Ben Hogan, who was too sick, and, of course, the few fellows who had passed away, like Jones and Walter Hagen. But, you know, I got a lot of those guys who were born in the early part of the century. I got, you know, the two of the three boys from 1912, Byron Nelson and Sam Snead, and Gene Sarazen born in 1902. And, you know, so I, I was pretty lucky. And so one day the, the White House calls and I get paged in the studio. I don't know what I was doing because I wasn't there very much except for the shows. And they said, Peter Kessler, come to the phone. So I went to the phone and somebody said, this is so-and-so from the White House and our VCR didn't work last night. And could you send us the show you did with whoever it was the night before? And I said, seriously? And she said, yeah, deadly serious. She said, Bill will not, the premise, the president will not be happy if we don't have this tomorrow. And I don't want it to be my fault. So I said, no problem. I said, I'll make a copy right now. We'll send it overnight. And years pass, and I'm playing golf where I play golf here in Orlando, Florida, where I live. And I walk into the men's washroom after a round to go wash my face. And I walk up to the sink. And who's standing at the next sink brushing his tongue with a toothbrush, literally, which I found out later is a really healthy thing to do, is Bill Clinton. And I look in the mirror. And he looks in the mirror and he goes, Peter. And for some reason, I went, Bill, instead of Mr. President. And he said, man, 
He said, I was so upset when you got canned from that. He said, that was the craziest thing I ever saw. He said, I did a lot worse things as president than criticizing somebody who did the wrong thing. He said, I didn't care who it was. He said, that was completely insane. He said, I wanted to be on that show. He said, if there's anything I can do to help you get back on TV, he said, you do not hesitate to get a hold of me. And he gave me a card that just said Bill Clinton, and it had a number on it. It didn't have former president. It just said Bill Clinton, and it had a phone number. That was it. No, no email, nothing else. And uh, he just went on and on and on, and I love that show so much. And he said, you know, are you as nice a person in real life as you made yourself out to be on TV? And I said, nobody's that nice. Are you kidding? I said, you know, that was, you know, I was, you know, I said a lot of it was me, of course. It was the best sides of me, but it was kind of a character that I created. And then I told him about my conversation with Sean. He said, oh, I love to play golf with 007. He said, I started to call him 007, and he looked at me, and I went, seriously? I said, I called him 00, and he laughed. And he said, well, he probably liked. He probably thought you did a better job than I did. <laughs> so we, we had a really good laugh about it. So, uh, you know, so if I ever get the shot, I've still got that card. I don't know if that number's good, but we'll dig, we'll, we'll dig that body up, and we'll get him, and we'll talk about golf. We'll talk about golf. Sean's too old to do it now. He's almost 90. He's not doing so good. Um, I tried to contact him when I heard it was his son that was making Tommy's armor. And, you know, I sent him a, a note and just begged him to introduce me to his son. And I said, you know, there's never been a golf movie because there's never been a good golf consultant on the set to keep the producer and the director from getting into trouble. And I said, and I can be so helpful. I said, especially the period we're talking about here from 1865 to, you know, 75. I said, you know, I just know it cold. And, you know, and I, and I promise I'm, if I'm not the leading expert, I'm certainly one of the top three. And I can really, really, really keep your son out of trouble. And I didn't hear back. And somebody told me later that he never did get the note because I kind of asked and somebody went to him and said, you ever get it? He said, no, I didn't get it. And um, But, you know, it was tragic. It was a horrendous film. The beards were terrible. They didn't know who old Tom was. The accents were wrong. And when young Tom Morris hit a 50-yard shot with what looked like a six-iron face without grooves from deep rough to a green and it spun back violently... I kind of threw up in my mouth because there is no there is no such shot in golf as that taking a straight face club hitting it 50 yards and spinning it back with no grooves on the club face out of long grass to a green that's fairly flat not even sloping back towards you and I just you know and I, you know I just like every other golf movie there's never been a golf, good golf movie of any kind whatsoever Caddyshack is a comedy in a golf setting, and it was a wonderful film, but I don't think of it as a golf movie. And the only good golf scene that there's ever been in any movie, and I've seen, well, there's a lot of them I couldn't get past the first few minutes. The Adam Sandler thing was, you know, was, it was embarrassing. Kevin Costner in Tin Cup, when I saw he was wearing the same T-shirt that James Conn had in Godfather 1, that wife-beater T-shirt, I said, I can't watch this anymore. So there's a lot of them I didn't make it past three or four minutes, but the only great scene is the scene in Goldfinger with Sean Connery as 007. 
and uh, Gert Frobe is Goldfinger. And the reason the scene worked, in addition to it being brilliantly written, was because they were recreational golfers. They were like eight or ten handicappers, and they looked like eight or ten handicappers. So it was believable. You know, you look at the Glenn Ford movie, Follow the Sun, as Ben Hogan. He didn't play golf. He was walking in pain with a limp before the accident. He had a hat that was three sizes too big. It was so, 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 so horrible. So embarrassed for everybody that was in it. And every movie since then, too. Just absolutely. You know, The Legend of Bagger Vance, Matt Damon was in. I played with Matt during the filming of that movie. He shot a 130. A one. 30. And that was with a lot of give me a sevens. I mean, this could have been like a serious get me an abacus to figure out this freaking score. I mean, you know, he swung like a little girl. He was the nicest guy, though. I got to tell you, he was a horrible golfer because he never played golf before. He started playing like two days before. And you would shot, would shot, would have shot 132. But an interesting thing happened with Matt Damon. We went out to dinner to a really nice restaurant, maybe six or eight of us, ten of us perhaps, and the waiter came to the table and wanted to present the specials. And a few people kept talking as the waiter started to talk. And Matt said, shh, let the man make his presentation. And I was so impressed with that. You know, and the the server said, you know, we've got this and we've got that. But I just thought that, it was so cool, and I was one of the ones who was quiet because I had the same philosophy as Matt Damon. When somebody's making a presentation, you let them have their performance. And a waiter is, in part, a performer when he gives you the specials and tries to charm you and, and to get your evening off to a good start and to, to be engaging and smile. And Matt Damon made sure that the waiter in this restaurant got the full opportunity to make his presentation and act out his scene. It was really just the most lovely gesture so Peter through the course of the stories you mentioned back on TV right when you're talking about President Clinton and the conversation you know last year I put out a list of five things that I was wishing for in 2017 and around the game of golf right and right at the top of the list was Peter Kessler back on the airwaves and I've and I've put my 2018 out there and it's still right at the top of the list Peter Good. Kessler Back on the airwaves, are we getting any closer? I well, every year for say the six or eight last years, somebody comes to me every year and says, "Would you like to do TV shows again?" And of course, I say yes. It's pretty much the only thing I'm good at, and so. You need two things, of course, as you know better than anybody. You need distribution. You need a channel, a network, a home, something, a place to broadcast from. And you either need investor dollars so you can shoot new shows, or you need some ad sales in advance so you can shoot some stuff instead of trying to take it out of your own pocket, banging out a bunch of shows, getting up the number of people who watch your stuff, and then going to advertisers. It's a, that's a heartbreaking, no-win scenario. So every year it falls falls apart. But this year, I ran into uh, a couple of guys um, who have the wherewithal on distribution and the potential for investor and or ad dollars. And we're still early in the process. And it could be a really cool web presence or it could be a TV presence. I'm not sure at this point. But uh, if it comes to be, one of the things that they will do 
is ask me to do shows like I used to do, uh, an instructional show and an interview show, and probably this time with golfers and celebrities who play golf like Bill Clinton. And uh, but it's nowhere near done. It's it's you know we might as well call it we're at the the starting line. But I've got the right people surrounding me, so it's still a long shot. But if it happens, I'll get to do what I'm good at, and uh, and it'll be a lot of fun. And I don't think I've forgotten how to do it. And you know, and I've certainly stayed sharp on golf history. And and that's kind of why I like the Twitter thing because somebody always says, you know. Bobby Jones wasn't as great as they say, and then that just lights a fire under me. And then I go, okay, now make sure you do it edgy. Don't don't be real nice, but teach him golf history. But you know, if it's a jerky thing to you, then you jerky thing to them back and really kick the stuffing out of them. And I get so many direct messages where people go, you're the only guy on Twitter who tells it like it is. You're the only honest person on Twitter. You're the only reason I'm on Twitter. You're the best follow on Twitter. My father loved you. And I write back and say, your father loves me. Give me his number. Give me his name. I'll call his cell phone tomorrow. And they go, really? And I go, definitely, lutely. I said, you know, I'm, <laughs> I said, anybody who says they don't like it when somebody says I'm a big fan, that's just a total lie. I said, unless you're somebody like tiger and that's all you hear i said but in my life you know it's always been proportionate you know if i if i go to a golf course i've never been to before six or eight or ten people will approach me over the course of the day either in the pro shop or around the first tee or when i come in and have a bite to eat or whatever you know the 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 guy who's the marshal will always know me because you know he's retired and so he's going to be older than me and he's going to have been familiar with my stuff and be a big fan and and all that sort of stuff so you know I, i i really like all of that and so when somebody says their dad's a huge fan, I give me give me the name, give me the number, I'll call him. I'll call him right now if you want me to. And I've done it a bunch of times. And last year, a friend of mine said, you know, I keep meaning to get you to call my dad. And I said, and I've asked you six or eight times for his number. Give me his number. And he and and we didn't do it at the end of a dinner that I go to every six weeks. A friend of mine for 28 years has been holding a gentleman's dinner where he invites 20 guys every six weeks, and he asks sort of two questions, and everybody around the table's got to answer them like. Uh, how were you like your dad? What did what did you not do as well as your dad? What did you do better than your dad? I mean, some you know some stuff that you have to think about it. And we go around the table, or you know, what do you want your obituary to say? And I said, I want mine to say, he was a man of many possibilities, most of them brilliantly realized. <laughs> Which was actually Noel Coward's epitaph, which he chose for himself. Peter, if if I'm not your biggest fan, I'm certainly in the top three, and I would take you, you are my, over you're Tiger. Definitely, you're definitely a top three, no question. You're nobody's <laughs> nicer to me online than you are. I mean, you put these things out every week. You, I wish I had your disposition. You, you put out the nicest things every week. You say the nicest things about me, the Hall of Fame thing. I was so flattered. The I hope you get back on TV thing. I was, I was so pleased. I was so thrilled. I was so flattered again there. You know, you had me on the show. You, you, you blow smoke at me, but I know you mean it. And, uh, and I love doing the show. And, and really, you know, to turn it on its head, uh, you know, you do so 
much stuff for sports and for charity and then the stuff with the armed forces. I mean, you make such a big contribution and you give everybody else the credit and stuff. I mean, you're just freaking great at what you do. You're a great researcher. You're a great interviewer. You're a thoughtful, decent, good human being. And everybody knows that. They know that you're just a good man. And there's not a lot of good men. And you certainly are one of them. And so I'm really thrilled that we have this relationship. And I'm always pleased when you think well of me, because when a good man thinks well of you, it means so much more than if it's just Joe Schmo that you know, might not be a, a really good man, and you're you're a good man in the in the biblical sense of the word, and in the classic sense of the word, and in the literal sense of the word, and so you know, a compliment from you just means so much, and and I feel like you've accomplished so much in your efforts to draw attention to things that are important to you, all of which are good, and all of which are right, and all of which are true. So I'm just I'm just thrilled that, that I'm your friend. Wow. That might be the nicest thing anyone's ever said to me, and I appreciate that more than you could possibly imagine, Peter. Thank you no, for that very, very much. And, and, You're a and great thing, man. And, and as you know, it's certainly reciprocal. And, and one of the one of the things that this show, and you know, I do a, another one on the football side, but one of one of the things that I still pinch myself over is that I can send you a text message, and you know it's me. That, that to me, to think that Chris Mascaro is in Peter Kessler's contact list still blows me away to even, you know. Think what are you talking about? I wait, I wait for those damn things. I go, well, how come he hasn't called me and I don't hear from him? You know, so actually it's just the opposite because I get one. I go, about freaking time the dude called me. I haven't been on for a few months. He has, you know, was he forgetting? So I look forward to those. No, I don't just answer them. I'm waiting for him, dude. <laughs> well, I appreciate that very much, Peter. You're fantastic. You know how much I love you. I appreciate the time tonight, Peter. And, Thanks, buddy. And, uh, and, and just so you know, one of the things that you've taught me about th- doing this show or any interview, to be honest with you, is, to, is, is something that I always keep in the back of my mind because I always hear your voice in the back of my mind when I'm doing an interview because I think my job is to say, is ask a question and then you get the hell out of the way and let you or whoever my guest is go. And that, that's something that you've taught me that I have always kept, whether it's on this show or it's on the other one, to know a, a good interview is me saying very little and then getting out of the way so that my guest can say a lot. And there's and nobody absolutely. else I would rather say a lot than you. Well, and that's the job, as you know, well know that I know. And, you know, a really good interviewer will ask a really good question and then get six or eight minutes in return. And I know that's what you want from me. And I know that I need that much room. I, I need the full canvas to get out all of the stuff and make the historical reference and the connection and the tie-in. And, and, you know, I need time to do that. You know, and Herb Wynn, the great writer, said, man, it takes me 5,000 words just to warm up. So I'm always appreciative that you just you just lay back and you let me do what you want me to do, which is to entertain your listeners. And I'm always thrilled to do it, and I love the feedback. I appreciate it, Peter. Take care, my friend. Happy New Year. I hope this uh, this you year too. brings everything that you are looking for and that uh, Thanks, I'm wishing for for you. So take care, my friend. You're we'll so catch sweet. up soon. You're so sweet. Thank you, Chris. Take good care, buddy.
That's the great Peter Kessler, folks. And as you heard on, you know, about the Twitter piece, go check him out. You got to follow Peter at Peter Kessler. It's very easy. At Peter Kessler on Twitter. You can also find him on Facebook. There is, uh, there's just no one, but no one like him, no one better than him, and uh, and anything that he has done. And uh, if there's, you know, an interview Hall of Fame, and there is. Right, you know, there should be a, a wing in there. You know, uh, that's got more representation in the Pro Golf Hall of Fame. But Peter Kessler's bust certainly belongs right there. All right, folks, it is time for me to put a bow on this episode of Next on the Tee. But before we close up shop, you know how we always like to get a word from Jim Estes about the great things that they are doing at the Salute Military Golf Association. Let's uh, get a reminder from Jim. The Salute Military Golf Association was created to provide rehabilitative golf experiences to the brave men and women who have been wounded while serving our country. Hi, I'm Jim Estes, PGA Golf Pro and co-founder of the Salute Military Golf Association. With my adaptive golf program, we've successfully helped thousands of soldiers in their recovery, both mentally and physically. The SMGA has been providing family-inclusive golf experiences across the country since 2007. To date, the SMGA has equipped more than 1,000 warriors with properly fitted golf clubs and has extended its clinic series to more than eight chapter and affiliate locations across the U.S. If you are a wounded veteran interested in participating or if you'd like to learn more about the Salute Military Golf Association and find a chapter closest to you, visit our website at smga.org. We've seen firsthand how impactful golf can be in aiding one's recovery. The Salute Military Golf Association, empowering wounded veterans one fairway at a time. Visit smga.org. That's smga.org. Yeah, folks, they continue to do great things there at the Salute Military Golf Association. To find out more information and to see how you can get involved, go online to smga.org. All right, folks, my sincere thanks again to Steve Mona and Peter Kessler for joining me tonight. I hope you all enjoyed the show. I'm blown away by the show tonight. That uh, If you enjoyed it half as much as I did, then we're really doing something. Please give me your thoughts. Check out our page on Facebook, Next on the Tee with Chris Mascaro. You can share your feedback right there. Plus, if you have a question for one of our future guests, let me know. I'll be glad to get it on the show for you. Or if you have one for one of our previous guests, we'll get the question over to him or her and get the answer back, uh, back for you. You can see who some of our future guests are going to be by going online to our website, nextonthetee.net. Please also check out our sister show on the football side, Thursday Night Tailgate, with me and my co-host Bob Lazari, our announcer Joe LaGenusa. That show airs live every Thursday night from 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time. You can stream it live from Blog Talk Radio. Go on blogtalkradio.com, and, uh, or that show like this one is also available as a free podcast by going over to our great friends on Podbean or on iHeartRadio as well. On Thursday Night Tailgate, we are joined every week by five NFL legends sharing their stories from their playing days, plus insights into what's going on to, uh, in today's game over on the NFL. Uh, we also highlight two players doing great things you know, in their communities in our Spotlight on the Positive segment. You can hear that as well. You can find that show online at ThursdayNightTailgate.com. Again, available in the same places on Podbean and iHeartRadio as well. Folks, thanks for choosing to listen to this show again tonight. We know there are a lot of podcasts and radio shows out there for you to listen to. We really appreciate the fact that you are making Next on the T one of them. Until next week, hit them straight, my friends. You've been listening to Next on the T with Chris Mascaro, where PGA and LPGA pros and top instructors and media members go to tell their stories. Join us the same time every Tuesday 
Just hear more stories about the game we love From people who love sharing those stories with you It's all about the great game of golf It's all about the great game of golf